<clears throat> Chapter four, principle four, tackle your toughest challenge today. The need for change bulldozed a road down the centre of my mind. Maya Angelou. Burnout happens, not because we're trying to solve problems, but because we've been trying to solve the same problem over and over. Hand in hand with the courage to interrogate reality comes the courage to bring to the surface and confront your toughest personal and professional issues, which often involve an individual whose attitude, behaviour or performance is a problem. I smiled at a passage in A Banquet of Consequences by Elizabeth George. If Barbara can't find it in herself to work, not only as a member of a team, but also as an individual whose responsibilities carry the weight of certain behavioural requirements, then she needs to find another line of employment. Frankly, I can come up with several, but most of them have to do with sheep and the Falkland Islands, and my guess is that lacks a certain appeal. It is possible that the Emperor is, indeed sans clothing, that a sacred cow must be shot, that identities will unravel, that forms will break down, that there will be a period of freefall. It is also possible that a conversational freefall is what is needed to help you turn the relationship corner. Tell me again, I hear you ask, exactly why would I put myself through this? Why would I subject myself and others to discomfort, given everything that's on our plate? Because what's on the other side of your most frustrating relationships is worth it. Relief, success, health, freedom from stress, happiness, a high-performing team, a fulfilling personal relationship. And because of what's in store for you, if you continue to avoid addressing and resolving the tough issues, think confronting, it, think confronting an executive about his or her behaviour could be costly Consider the cost of a good headhunter when this person is finally made available to industry. Think confronting an emotional issue with a life partner is too risky. Ask your divorced friends how long it took for them to regain their sanity. Think this glitch in the organisation, caused in part because of someone's mismanagement or ineffective leadership style, is too complex or sensitive to solve. Ask someone whose company failed which of its competitors is still standing and why. The undiscussables. Some things are much more difficult to talk about than others. Many business groups and family members operate with an unspoken rule book, including a list of undiscussables, topics that are too risky to bring up. After all, your last attempt netted you two weeks, two weeks as, a, as the corporate pariah, or you ended up sleeping on the couch. Some topics on the undiscussables list are in the form of quid pro quo agreements. Without discussing it, everyone instinctively understands the deal that has been struck. I won't mention of your bungling of the Ross account if you won't bring up how many people have left my team. I won't complain about how often you miss deadlines if you won't point out that I've missed a few myself. I won't yell at you about the credit card bill if you won't go ballistic when I buy a Harley. I won't mention your drinking if you don't talk about my weight. Sometimes we avoid saying what needs to be said because we're sure there will be consequences. Are you crazy? Say that to him and he'll hand, your, hand you your head on a platter. She's on a rampage, disappointed with the team. The team's fine. She's the problem. But if anybody tries to tell her that, they'll be held to pay. You get what you tolerate. In addition to the kind of organisational issues that come up in mineral rights conversation, let's take a look at a reality every organisation must regularly examine. 
What are the skills, attitudes and talents of our employees and are there gaps between those resources and what our market demands? Several years ago, I sat in on a meeting of managing directors in Edinburgh, Scotland. Once I got past my enchantment with the brogue and could pay attention to the issues being discussed, my thought was, they have the same issues as the CEOs in Seattle and London and Indianapolis and Sydney and Chicago and Vancouver. The common thread? People. When solving problems, producing results or addressing strategy, we invariably turn to the performance of individual employees. Do we have the talented people we need to successfully deliver our product or service to our customers? It's been interesting to note that the vast majority of leaders with whom I've worked, who for the most part are fairly well grounded in reality, tend to hold out hope that marginal employees will magically transform themselves overnight into high performers. I don't know about you, but I've not yet witnessed a a spontaneous recovery from incompetence or a bad attitude. As a leader, you get what you tolerate. I'm reminded of a frustrated client who finally told an employee, I'm not here to evaluate your performance, I'm here to locate it. What's needed is a fierce conversation, perhaps a series of them, followed by relentless follow-through and ongoing support. While some people can't be saved, many can. Most people will comply with clear requests. Perhaps the fierce question leaders need to ask themselves, sorry, perhaps the fierce question leaders need to ask themselves is, were my employees dead when I hired them or did I kill them? Have you communicated clearly not only the results but also the behaviour that you want? What about attitude? Herb Keller, co-founder and former CEO of Southwest Airlines, famously said, we are prepared, including legally, to fire you for a bad attitude. Southwest Airlines employees are rarely accused of sleepwalking through the manual. Instead, they're known for bringing a playfulness and individuality to their work. How does an airline get this behaviour out of its employees? By clearly communicating what is expected and parting company with those who don't meet the bar. During all of my conversations with Peter Schutz, former president of Porsche, his message was consistent. Higher attitude, trained skill. Peter was successful in large part because he was clear about the attitude he was looking for at Porsche. The key question is, what attitudes will lead to success in our company? Follow-up questions are, to what degree do our employees exhibit these attitudes? And to what degree am I and other leaders exhibiting these attitudes? In my work with leaders and their teams, I've discovered that a universal talent is the ability to avoid conversations about attitude, behaviour or poor, poor performance. I take the high road is often, as an, is often an excuse for not tackling the issue. It's far better to take the direct road. Granted, revealing painful truths, our own or others, is tough. A comp- a- <laughs> Upon contemplating a needed confrontation with an individual who, when challenged, had a history of becoming defensive, emotional and irrational, one client said, I've always dreamed of selling seashells on the seashore. Maybe it's not too late. If your stomach flips at the thought of confronting someone's behaviour, you're in excellent company. It is far less threatening to talk about declining sales than to look straight into someone's baby blues or browns and address the specific behaviour that may be causing the deadline, the decline. I'm so sorry, I don't know what's wrong with me today. Head in the clouds. I'm going to start that paragraph again. 
If your stomach flips at the thought of confronting someone's behaviour, you're in excellent company. It is far less threatening to talk about declining sales than to look straight into someone's baby blues or browns and address the specific behaviour that may be causing the decline. Instead, we talk with others over lunch and by the coffee pot about the person whose behaviour is driving us mad. It's called triangulating. Person A bonds with person B over their mutual loathing of person C. James Newton shared a unique point of view on critiquing others behind their backs. He asked, how do you housebreak a puppy? Put it in a crate. What's the one thing a dog won't do in its crate? Poop. I sure wish human beings were as smart. Complaining to anyone other than the person with whom you have a problem is like soiling your own crate. If you really want to resolve the issue, go directly to the source and confront the person's behaviour one-to-one in private. Understandably, many of us fear confrontation because it hasn't gone well in the past. All attempts to date have failed miserably. We don't know how to make it better this time, and the stakes are fairly high. We sense that a monster is lurking in the bushes and today is not the day we're prepared to take it on. Or this is not the hill on which we're prepared to die. Our fears may include... A confrontation could escalate the problem rather than resolve it. I could be rejected... I could lose the relationship. Confronting the behaviour could force an outcome for which I'm not prepared. I could incur retaliation. I could be laughed at or not taken seriously. The cure could be worse than the disease. I could be met with irrationality irrationality or emotional outbursts. I might hurt his or her feelings. I could discover that I am part of the problem. Yet the results of not confronting a problem include the problem could escalate rather than be resolved. I could be rejected. I could lose the relationship. I could lose my job. Emotions could escalate until someone blows up. You get the drift. The very outcomes we fear if we confront someone's behaviour are practically guaranteed to show up if we don't. It will just take longer and the results will likely occur at the worst possible moment when we're least expecting it, with a huge prize tag attached and will possibly appear on YouTube. Repositioning confront. When most people think of confrontation, they picture angry faces, clenched teeth, roiling emotions. This is because of their context about confrontation. For example, let's imagine you believe that dogs are dangerous. The door opens and a dog walks in and heads towards you. You're afraid. The dog didn't scare you. Your belief scared you. While I don't expect anyone to wake up in the morning thinking, Oh boy, I get to confront someone today. I do want to recast the whole notion of confrontation. Last fall on a train from Salisbury to London, I was talking with a young couple sitting opposite me. I shared that I was teaching a session on how to confront and at the same time enrich the relationship with the person they're confronting. I mentioned the word conversation was derived from the Latin conversare, which means an exchange of ideas and sentiments, and that it had occurred to me that the meaning of the Spanish word con is with. Therefore, the word confront could mean to be with someone in front of something. The young woman said, My father doesn't have conversations, he has versations, or versations. I gave up trying to have a conversation with him long ago.
I laughed and winced at this insight, wondering what her father would feel if he heard her words. Conversation and confrontation both begin with the idea of with. The fierce version of confrontation is not firing at someone from across the room, but rather sitting side by side, looking at the issue together. If you think about it, all confrontation is a search for the truth, a two-person beach ball conversation. Each of us owns a piece of the truth and neither of us owns all of it. Before we address how to confront someone whose behaviour, attitude or performance has become intolerable, let's talk about how to possibly avoid this conversation altogether by giving and receiving feedback face-to-face, staying current with one another 365 days a year. The value of feedback. That promotion you received was not a miraculous event. You earned it one job well done after another, one successful conversation at a time. You are aware of the many things you did over time to get where you are. On the other hand, if your career is lagging or if you've ever been terminated, you probably recognise in your heart of hearts that you arrived at that negative suddenly, one poor job after another, one failed or missing conversation at a time. The sad thing is many people are shocked when they don't get a promotion or are terminated because they truly had not realised things were so bad. One thing's for sure, when a negative suddenly arrives, we are instantly on alert. It's a bad day if we thought we were doing fine and suddenly learn that our boss, co-workers or customers see it differently. Now you've got our attention. Imagine what it would be like if, rather than waiting 6 to 12 months for a formal performance review to learn how you're doing... Wow, I'm really excited about my performance appraisal today, said no one ever. You knew at all times how you were doing in the eyes of your boss, your colleagues, even your customers, staying wide awake during gradually. There would be no negative suddenlies. You'd always be clear about what you were doing well, what you could do even better, and any potentially significant roadblocks to your success. This is the goal and the outcome of feedback, and with it, the end of the performance review as we've known it. Sadly, some leaders are still clueless. At Fierce, Nicholas Nelson told me about a former employer. My last position mirrored some of the worst practices you've talked about. For example, during my six-month performance review, we were asked to rate ourselves, then have our management rate us. The first stage of self-evaluation was when the floor fell out from underneath me. After submitting my review to HR, I was told that I rated myself too high, I pushed back and told them this is how I felt about myself. Second round, same thing. HR said I couldn't submit my review until I brought my score down. Again, a pushback. Then the COO emailed me saying that even he didn't rate himself as high as I did and I needed to use his scores as a guide on how to rate myself. This went on and on, as you could imagine, And when it came time for them to rate me, my immediate supervisor tasked delivering the results to me to a a junior level manager and refused to discuss any questions I had about his report. Talk about making a guy feel good, right? This was just the tip of the iceberg with this company. Since the first edition of this book was published, a marvellous sea change is underway in the world of performance management. Savvy organisations are shifting the landscape of performance reviews, turning them into face-to-face conversations, some of which are initiated and led by employees. No more anonymous comments and rankings. Instead of chasing metrics, employees are focused on true growth and development. Makes me very happy, although it isn't happening everywhere. 
I had a conversation with a client this morning about this very topic in preparation for a keynote I'll be giving next week. She asked me not to say anything to the thousand attendees about the changes that I'm seeing and recommending because of because her company would never invite their 400,000 employees to decide what gets discussed regarding their performance. Ah, well, it's a great company that could be even greater. Sea changes don't happen overnight. Crowley Maritime Corporation, a family-owned, third-generation, 125-year-old marine solutions, energy and logistics services company, is supplementing year-end performance reviews with mid-year, employee-driven conversations. Crowley's instructions to employees are, you decide what to discuss, you schedule the meeting, you lead the conversation. Crowley suggests that employees choose two or more of the following topics – some of which are from Gallup's Q12 Employee Engagement Index for their mid-year conversations and provides tips for supervisors to listen well and coach employees. There is a list of things that employees may share and supervisors listen for. So, employees may share, I believe I am paid to, to help achieve my goals and I measure progress by. Supervisors listen for. Listen to your employee's understanding of what he or she is paid to do compared to what you think or expect. Employees may share. The things that distract me or get in the way of meeting the responsibilities are. Supervisors listen for. Listen for obvious issues that seem to get in the way of this person doing his or her work better. Employees may share, in the last six months I felt conflicted about priorities when supervisors listen for, listen for when and how you need to provide clear expectations about priorities. They may share, the parts of my current role that energise me are, you may listen for, how close of a fit this person is for their role, consider adjustments you can make that would better motivate and develop this employee. They may share, I feel my job is important when, or I add value to our team and customers by. Listen if this employee knows his or her value to the team, organisation and customers. Think of what you can do to make it easy for this employee to maximise his or her individual contributions. They may share, the best recognition I ever received was, it was the best because... Listen to the types of recognition that would be meaningful for this employee. Consider timing and how, for example, public versus private, this employee prefers to be recognised. In addition to these statements, Crowley encourages employees to choose at least two questions to ask, such as, which aspect of my role is most important to the department's strategy? Where could I redirect my focus? When do you seek my expertise? How can I be even more helpful? How do you think we complement each other as partners? What value do I personally bring to my internal and external customers? When do you see me at my best? The employee-driven mid-year conversations are new for Crowley. Going into them, Jennifer Church, Director of Organisational Development at Crowley Maritime, told me, Not everyone was initially convinced that this mid-year conversation was a good idea. There was some reluctance from sceptics. 
Now that the conversations have been completed, Suze Michelle, Vice President of Organisational Development and Change Leadership, shared, We will know more when we survey the organisation. Right now, I have quite a few emails where people said that they absolutely loved it. We haven't received any feedback from supervisors or employees that folks dislike the process. Crowley will solicit feedback on what worked and what could work better and will continue to refine what they do and how they do it. And of course, the mid-year conversation will not replace ongoing feedback. The question I put to everyone reading this book is, why has Crowley Maritime turned this important performance conversation over to their employees? Because ultimately, employees are responsible for their own performance, for their own career progression or or failure to progress. Crowley Maritime's high performance culture focuses on what the company, teams and individuals should be doing at all levels of the organisation in order to preserve forward momentum. I think what some employees might miss is the word individuals. Yes, your supervisor wants you to succeed, to grow and thrive professionally, but don't sit passively hoping your boss intuits where you want to go in your career and sees to it that you get there. In case you hadn't noticed, no one, not even your mother, cares as much about your success as you do, and this is why feedback is essential. Crowley suggests, you are the person with the greatest investment in your own development. You have a unique insight about your talents and strengths and how you can best leverage those within your group or company. It's important that you believe in yourself, advocate for yourself, and that you're clear about how others view you. When you get feedback, you need to own the results and then, as Sendelaney's accountability ladder indicates, get on with it. So there's a picture of the Sendelaney Leadership Consulting Group accountability ladder. And it is a ladder and it's at the bottom is powerless and at the top is powerful. So I'll go from the bottom upwards. So unaware, blame others excuses, wait and hope, acknowledge reality, own it, find solutions, get on with it. When I consider Crowley Maritime's mid-year conversation and ongoing feedback to employees, I'm reminded that while no single conversation is guaranteed to change the trajectory of a career, a company, a relationship or a life, any single conversation can It might help to think of feedback as a series of waypoints to keep you headed in the right direction. If you don't receive feedback and adjust accordingly, you may find yourself off track and on your way to a negative suddenly. Career-wise, my trajectory was not a straight line through space. It looked more like a winding map with one way streets and stop signs with plenty of help, aka feedback, along the way, some welcomed and some resented, even rejected. For example, being told by a male executive that I wasn't being promoted into the all-male executive suite because I wanted it too much. Looking back, I see that all of it was helpful, even comments that came from a place of sexism or prejudice, because they helped me understand the mindsets around me and helped me change minds or change the game. Reality was interrogated, learning was provoked, and I took the next steps on my journey. The definition of fierce feedback. Fierce feedback is a conversation in which we have the opportunity to see what we may not see. It is a small conversation during which much happens. 
Feedback done well allows us to grow, learn, improve and become more effective in how we work, play, interact and achieve results because it shines a light into an area we hadn't noticed before. It might be an area in which we excel, an area in which we are clueless, an area in which an area we had noticed and didn't wish to acknowledge or an area we had acknowledged and were unwilling to change because we didn't fully understand what was at stake. I want to emphasise that feedback should be face-to-face. In my second book, Fierce Leadership, a bold alternative to the worst, best practices of business today, I devoted the first chapter to the horrific, in my opinion, practice of anonymous feedback. Here's a brief excerpt. Feedback is invaluable. It's the anonymous part that gets us in trouble. We're like Woody Allen, who said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be in the room when it happens. It starts early in our impressionable lives, this attraction to anonymity, this hiding. So it's no wonder that, although most organisations profess to value openness, transparency, trust, respect, yeah, 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 when there are invaluable opportunities for candour, we send in our friend, good old, underpaid, overworked, anonymous, to slip the feedback over the transom and run like hell. I discovered an ally regarding my view of this best practice in Kevin Kelly, the editor of Wired and the author of Cool Tools. Each year, the scientific foundation called Edge Foundation asked dozens of scientists one provocative question. In response to the question, what is your dangerous idea? Kevin suggested the idea, more more anonymity is good. He wrote, Fancy algorithms and cool technology make true anonymity in in mediated environments more possible today than ever before. However, in every system I have seen where anonymity becomes common, the system fails. Anonymity is like a rare earth metal, a necessary ingredient in keeping a cell alive, but the amount needed is a mere hard-to-measure trace. In larger doses, these heavy metals are some of the most toxic substances. In vanishingly small doses, it's good for the system by enabling the occasional whistleblower or persecuted fringe. But if anonymity is present in any significant quantity, it will poison the system. Trust requires persistent identity. In the end, the more trust, the better. Like all toxins, anonymity should be kept as close to zero as possible. Well said. Just look at the most common definitions of anonymous in dictionaries. Anonymous, adjective, not identified by name, of unknown name, an anonymous phone call, having no outstanding individual or unusual features, unremarkable or impersonal, a faceless anonymous group. Used in names of support groups for addicts of a substance or behaviour to indicate the confidentiality maintained among members of the group. Alcoholics Anonymous, Debtors Anonymous. In what universe would anonymous feedback, anonymous anything, be considered a best practice? No one I know wishes to be unremarkable, impersonal, faceless or unknown and it would be difficult to argue that anonymity enriches relationships or strengthens connection with others. The fact is that anonymous feedback rarely creates real or lasting impetus for change, which is crazy because the whole idea is to encourage professional growth. 
Most commercials for the latest, greatest drugs include the warning that side effects can include loss of vision, muscle spasms, internal bleeding, uncontrolled barking, okay, maybe not that, and sudden death. The warning for anonymous feedback should read, not to be used within organisations that value honesty, transparency or openness, or by anyone who views authenticity as a desirable character trait. Side effects can include a culture of terminal niceness, avoiding or working around problem employees, tolerating mediocrity, beating around the bush, dancing around the subject, skirting the issues. If you experience rapidly deteriorating relationships or have difficulty maintaining eye contact with others, call your doctor immediately as these may indicate a serious problem and could become permanent. You are better than this. So are the people around you. So let's get good at this thing called feedback. Giving it, asking for it, receiving it, face to face. Through these conversations, you can get your manager's perspective on how to achieve your goals. Set priorities. Realign goals and expectations according to business changes. Share what you're most proud of and what makes you passionate about work. Discuss obstacles or barriers you encounter. Talk about what you appreciate and what you need from your supervisor. Talk about a skill you want to gain or a role to which you aspire. Gain awareness about performance or attitudinal shifts that need to be made. Sounds important, right? Then why isn't this happening as often as it should? It's our context that causes us to hesitate. It seems we don't give feedback because we connect feedback with criticism, forgetting that feedback can be positive. We are worried about how it will be received. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. We've been given little or no feedback ourselves, so it doesn't occur to us to expect or provide it. We don't care enough about the person to offer guidance. We don't know how to give feedback in a way that it lands, is helpful, useful and enriches the relationship. We think people already know how they're doing. We haven't been asked for feedback, which brings us to... We don't ask for feedback because we expect feedback to be negative. We're afraid we might not like what we we hear. It doesn't occur to us to ask for feedback. We think we're doing great. We're pretty sure we're not doing well and hope to avoid confirmation. We think we can tell how we're doing by the expression on others' faces or other cues. While all of this is understandable, it's also puzzling because if I asked you what you would want your boss to do if he or she thought you were doing a great job, you would say, tell me, right? And if I asked what you would want your boss to do if he or she thought you were doing a poor job, you would say, or at least I think you would say, tell me. Even if it would be hard to hear, you can't fix a problem you don't know about. So how and when should feedback be given? This chart may be useful in determining which situations warrant confrontation, which I'll address later in this chapter, and which simply require some feedback. So I'm going to read down the section that says feedback first, and then I will read down the section that says confrontation. So this is the section that says feedback. It's never happened before, and I don't think they were aware they did it. I see a pattern that could become a problem later on for the person and feel compelled to share it with them so that they have an opportunity to course correct. 
Happened once, I do not necessarily have an expectation they change, but rather I want to make sure they see it from my perspective. A mistake was made and it's important to share insights on what could have been done better. And then the confrontation. There is a pattern of similar behaviour. I've said something and nothing is changing or it is not changing quickly enough. The individual has done something and even once is too much. Keeps happening and now it's affecting our relationship, ability to work together effectively and or our results. Mistakes keep being made and there is an underlying issue that needs to be corrected to prevent further unanticipated mistakes.